Good job you parked right across the entrance there to make it as hard not as possible. For, no, no, that's, that's really, really... No, he's, got, he's got loads of... I've only got a little car. He's got plenty of space behind my car I and I've tucked in neatly. I tucked in neatly behind Rory so that we weren't taking up too much room. Rory did not tuck in neatly. Rory is jutting out into the yes. road. I, yes. Well, that's because you've got your massive SUV. Exactly. I've I, angered one of your neighbours, Chinch. Um, because I parked one further along and as I was trying to deal with the coffee spillage he was trying to get out of his drive and he was particularly angry that I was stopping him do that I said listen I've got coffee all over me give me 20 seconds I'll be back and I'll move the car yeah. 20 seconds later he had managed to find a way out so you were caffeine crazed weren't you? Was, do you know my, my, I've got new neighbours Dave the architect has left gone. has he left he's left has he's he, moved on has he also yeah. left your Wikipedia page uh I probably not. No, that's we probably probably, check, he's, he's going to keep that connection with me because physically he's no longer close to me, but he'll still want that closeness, maybe over the internet. Where's he gone? Uh, I don't know. We the were good friends. <laughs> <laughs> what sort of person has bought that wreck of a property next door to you? I don't know. I've not met them. I've actively tried to not meet them, Steve. Because I looked at it on Right Move, and I thought way too much to do there. Really? Well, yeah. I mean, obviously the neighbor, you know, you take the neighbours into consideration as well. Yeah. Well, that, that's, that's that's what they've been. It's doing. a that's big draw, commitment. That that's going to draw anybody in living next door to me. But they are crash bang walloping about. I don't know what they're doing in there. They, probably, probably sort of constructing some sort of wall to keep you out. Do you think so? Yeah. A really big high <laughs> is wall. There, is there not already a wall build, between the two houses? Build that wall. <laughs> build that wall. Yeah. So again, I, I'm actively staying away from them. I duck behind hedges when they when they turn into their driveway so they don't see me. They perhaps think they're living next door to some sort of wire. They'll they'll know who they're living next door to. They'll know me. Well, it'll be on Wikipedia sometime soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How was NBC, Chinch? It was it was great. Yeah, had absolutely no feedback since. So bit worried, bit worried. But maybe that's the way the Americans do it, isn't it? You come, you work for us, and then we don't speak to you ever again. They're actually pretty hot on their feedback. Yeah. Oh come on. The Americans very well renowned for dissecting a broadcast almost immediately afterwards are you sure Large have you checked debrief. your phone uh, I have checked my phone every hour of every day still nothing from New York have they paid you I'm trying to go through the document the documentation is extraordinary I've had three different American ladies get in touch with me sending me the same documentation are we still Price. on NBC <laughs> yes and uh, I, I can't make head and a tail of it it's complex so Deanne from New York is going to we're going to have a bit of a, a conference call and she's going to talk me through walk me through the process you know you know when there's just two people on it it's not a conference call it's just a phone she call she said it was a conference call there might be someone listening more than more than two people to make it a conference she call has a, she has a PA yeah and a, a coffee getter person so there will be more than two people well, so well, it is a conference coffee call. more successfully than I did this morning I know you're bad at being a coffee getter <laughs> I'm not you a very good coffee getter not a very good PA not a very good coffee how, how getter how bad is the spillage come on be serious how um, bad is it it's about two and a half cups of coffee swimming around in the back of my car currently it's the coffee's not the worry it's the milk that's in the coffee how much milk are they lattes or um, well there's two cappuccinos yeah. one cortado for the ponce Rory yeah um, and a cup of milky tea and basically three quarters of your uh, kitchen roll is now in the back of my car but that milk once that turns yeah that car is going to be basically a, you're driving yoghurt this is Set Piece Many the podcast where four friends talk football over food I'm Hugh Ferris joining me are Rory Smith who already in 2020 has landed a banger or two in the sports pages of the New York Times Andy Hinchcliffe who already in 2020 has landed in Portugal and Stephen <laughs> Wyeth who already in 2020 has landed on his arse on a skiing holiday and there is indeed evidence uh, the food has been provided by Chinch Chinch could you take us through the pastry offerings it's, it's a bit uh, granted it's a bit poor I, I have a bit of jet lag I flew in from Portugal it's a two and a half hour flight so it's exhausting same time I zone. arrived same time <laughs> I got in pretty late I got in after nine last night so I didn't really Carly went out and got the 
got the danishes. I just said, I need something for the guys, just to fuel us for the pod. And she went out and came back with some pastries, and that's as far as she was willing to given go. So I'm blaming Carly for everything. Given that Carly is the mother of a two-and-a-half-year-old girl... She is. She, I'd say that you should not be sending her out on food-based ah, errands. That's where you're wrong. I arrived back, and I said, I'll nip out and get them in the morning, and she insisted on going to Budgeon's, <laughs> which is our local... Not a grocer's, convenience really. Convenience store. store. Oh, here's Agamemnon, the, uh, the postman. Um, but... <laughs> Yeah, so she insisted. I, I think she went for a, a snidey fag in the, in the lay-by around the corner. Right. So that's, that's why she wanted to go for the pastries last night. So I didn't force her. Basically, Chinch had been home for half an hour before Carly had to get out. Yeah. She, she needed a bit of space. It wasn't even half an hour. Literally five minutes. Uh, you can get in touch with the podcast, menu at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook as well. We have had some suggestions for the third centre-back in our unfulfilled potential slash hype 11. Many suggestions. Uh, we tentatively put um, Jean-Alain Boomsong um, into the oven after changing the formation. the same way he defended, tentatively. <laughs> tentatively, <laughs> at the very best of him. Um, that was the last minute decision because we wanted to play 3-4-3, but the haste with which we made the cut uh, was unsettling, so we wanted you to bail us out, is what we asked on Twitter. Um, Chris Wilkerson, who's in Australia, should get the first mention because he sent us a full 25-man squad wow. after we recorded the episode but prior to it going out. So sorry, Chris only uh, gets referenced now. Uh, Chris um, had a whole team then with three at the back so his predictive abilities were astonishing uh, my favorite suggestion of his overall was Curlon. oh the do you remember the, the brazilian midfielder yeah. yeah and his accompanying sentence with each of the players in his squad um, had this one for Curlon: dribbled with the ball on his head how will they tackle him he'll score hundreds uh, was apparently the hype that surrounded Curlon. Uh, he didn't do anything how about just head it off his head that would have been the way to deal with that problem, Chinch, I yeah. agree. Mm. That is why, Chinch, you are at the forefront of tactical I, I, analysis. It tends to be... Mm. I, don't know, I don't know whether Turlon was... I mean, he was, it was too early for it to be kind of a viral thing, but there was an element of kind of internet hype about Turlon that I think wasn't probably matched by any sense of reality. When Nanny signed for Manchester United, there was a YouTube video that did the rounds with him doing his backflips and his somersaults and his crazy True. goals, so you know. Actually, Nanny would have been quite good suggestion. Can I, Curlon? I've never heard... What, what year? I, had, what? I hadn't heard the Curlon, Steve but I, Curlon. I knew about the, the, the guy who dribbled on his head. Yeah, he was... What years we talked? I, I, year? I think he probably... I stand to be directed. I think Curlon probably emerged into people's consciousness in the early 2000s. He needed to emerge a little bit more it, for you, me to take notice Your of consciousness, Jinch, yeah. is particularly hard it to is. penetrate. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the centre-back, though, that Chris had um, that merits consideration is Michael Mancien. Uh, we should say oh. also that the venerable P BBC presenter Steve Crossman also chimed in with Michael Mancien. He plugged us, so we can plug him. He's great. Uh, Michael Mancien. No. Oh, I was quite convinced by because that. Because I think Michael Mancien was signed by Chelsea so they could loan him out and then sell him as part of that player trading business they were running for a bit I don't think anyone ever thought Michael Mancien was going to be a Premier League star we had quite a few suggestions many of them in the last 24 hours of players who people felt hadn't matched their hype but hadn't taken into consideration that perhaps there was simply too much hype and I wonder whether Mancien falls into that category uh, quite a few have suggested Philippe Mexes. I suspect that's a football manager thing I, but also, I'd say Metz has actually had a decent career. He wasn't the world's greatest defender, which is what, if, if you played like CM0102, he was going to be. But which I hope we all did. Which I suspect literally everyone listening to this podcast did. Um, Metz has had a, re had a really long, quite good career. He's nowhere near this team. Nowhere near it. Andrew Kowalski suggested a defender who was, and these are his words, surely one of the most hyped players ever who turned out to be pretty terrible and would slot in nicely on the left-hand side of a three, which is a potential slot. Um, Eliakim Mangala. 
Yeah, that's Mandela's probably. I mean, whether he'd slot in nicely anywhere is a different matter. <laughs> <I'd say. laughs> he Mandela, went for a lot of money. Was he actually meant to be all that? Yeah, he was. There was a point when Mandela, when he left, was he at Anderlecht or Standard? He went, he went from, to Porto. He, he is a Mets legend. My French team. Uh, Mets. I remember uh, seeing him play. He he played City played Newcastle, and he was up against Rolando Arons, who was about mm. twelve at the time, and he ran Mangala ragged. And at that point, I thought, hmm, how much did they spend on him? Thirty odd million. Forty-two. He couldn't yeah. defend. Mm, which he he's needed. still there. Yeah, he's still there. No, he's, yeah. he's out on he's out on loan. No, I think. Oh, is he gone? I think they maybe couldn't loan him out. Really? I think Mandel is still there. He had at least two, possibly three, quite big money moves. And clearly there was a lot of kind of, this guy's going to be great. And people would have looked at his physical attributes and assumed he's, he's going to be a great defender. I'm not sure there was ever anything there particularly. But he's a good suggestion. But you can go for a lot of money, but not necessarily the hype. Because players go for a lot of money anyway. But there was hype around him. He well, was going to yeah, be yeah. We spoke brilliant. about Danielson being a money thing. Yeah. Um, Lentini probably being a money thing. But Lentini is a funny one. Is a, is a strange one because, well, he's not going to get in because our midfield is sorted. Uh, David Dalton and quite a lot of people on Twitter all recommended Titus Bramble. As somebody who was supposed to be the next best yeah, thing. Yeah, he was hilariously big, bad. But amazingly was he? good defender when he was a teenager at Ipswich. Newcastle spent, what, six, six million? When, which, that, when that was a lot of money. Which probably equates to about 30 million now. But was he actually considered to be brilliant? Yeah, him, or? And, him and Dyer at Ipswich were the two ah. kind of big... Yeah, the, Bramble's not a bad shout. Ah. Do we uh, have enough to replace Boomsong in our 11? I mean, Bramble would be the strongest contender of those, I think. I like the fact that when we put it on Twitter, lots of people came back with names that we had discussed. Especially Listen, as it was the third time we'd put it on yeah. Twitter. We'd put it on to, to fuel the initial discussion. Then we put it on ahead of our discussion to put together the 11. And, and still people... People like a graphic. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and that is a lesson well learned. Yeah. It's, it's Phil Jones in our team. Yes. Oh, yes. But I was going to say, if you'd seen him play in the first leg of the League Cup semi-final, he absolutely should be in our team. Yeah, that, that was very much a performance to cement his place in our team, I think. He, he got cramp and actually improved. <laughs> So we're going to let's let's go for Titus Bramble, shall Bram, we? I quite like Bramble. Titus yeah. Bramble. I mean, you could have Bramble and Boomsong because they played together for Newcastle, but uh, but Bramble choice. is the one that we're going to go with. He was clearly known it. as Titus Shambles, wasn't he? Because he his defending. Steve, was, we was need poor. a new graphic. Yes. You, you, I'm going to have to redo the entire graphic. Yep. For swapping one former Newcastle defender for another. You've got to cut and paste. Oh, That's Steve, so much really? How long is that going to take? God, fine. I've got children. <laughs> Uh, now, the rest of the team is settled, but that won't prevent me from reading a little of what it is. is an excellent email from Arca Day, who is in London. Dear Andy, Hugh, Rory and Stephen. When you floated the idea of discussing players with unfulfilled potential, I had a name on my lips almost instantly. I was dismayed to then learn that there was not a single mention of him across the four of you. There wasn't even a casual dismissal of his suitability. Mind you, which I would have accepted with all the grace of a footballer, accepting a yellow card for a professional foul, one hand raised and half apology, eyes firmly on the floor, followed by a short hand clap with a foul player... <laughs> I have taken this to heart, says Arca. Despite your extremely mature views as a group on subjects like the media, players off-field influences, and the introduction of video assistance for referees, apparently it's called something or the other, and can no longer regard the four of you on the same pedestal as I once did. The fact that you are willing to consider doing live shows across the pond before considering London has only served to turn my anguish into torment. But such is life, and I too must live and learn. One might even say that over the past week I have been even more harshly weathered by the footballing winds than usual. <laughs> <laughs> Arker says then the player in question is Hatem Ben Arthur Ooh, while he has yeah. not had an awful career by mm. any means surely the disparity between his potential Ballon d'Or to state my opinion succinctly and bluntly and what he has become 
Occupation, content creator. Description, occasional footballing gift provider. Is as wide a chasm as the one between Andy's reflection of his career and video evidence. By which I mean, he was better than he remembers and his attempts to play down his contributions with ironic delusions of grandeur are not lost on all of us, he says. Drawing back the curtain a little bit too much. Anyway, we're getting into extremely subjective speculation here, given that I have never met Mr. Ben Arthur or even heard him interviewed ever and know absolutely nothing about him. But I always felt that he was one or two serendipitous transfers slash ideologies slash mentors away from really making it. Then again, aren't we all? Out of the Ravel Morrison slash Adel Tarabts of this world, I believe the technical term is Fancy Dan's, he seemed to me the one who could be coached not just into a better application of his abilities, but also into shouldering responsibility for a team, if circumstances had been more fortunate. I could be absolutely wrong, of course, but had modern-day man management seeped into English footballing culture a tiny bit earlier, who knows? Yours faithfully, Arca, in London. For now, anyway. I bet you announce a live event here the day that I move somewhere else. Uh, thank you, Arca. Um, I don't know if Ben Arthur's getting in. No, Ben Arthur is not getting in, but that was an ex- exceptional email. Uh- a lot of people on Twitter suggested Tarapt, and I think I thought about Adel Tarapt a lot recently, as I always do. In what capacity? Um, is it just as a friend? Oh, okay. And Gentleman lover. The, um, <laughs> so the thing with Tarapt is Tarapt was extremely talented, and from that so point that you, really long email about Hatem Ben and you're immediately pivoting to, to somebody I'm that he mentioned on to Ben oh, Okay. The, the thing with Tarapt is that he was really talented, but his talent wasn't necessarily as an eleven-a-side footballer. <laughs> he would have made a great like YouTube freestyler. Tarapt, but he wasn't actually that good. I watched Adel Tarapt play quite a lot at QPR, weirdly, and he wasn't actually that good at playing 11-a-side football for a professional football team. He was really like, technically gifted. He kind of had the career... He, 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 Adel Tarapt had the only career he could have had, essentially. Maybe he could have played a few more games here and there, but basically had the, the only career he could have had, similar to Kevin Prince-Boateng, I would say, um, who's another name that would have been worthy of consideration. Ben Arthur... I think he's right. I think Arthur's right. He there was a point at which Ben Arthur looked like he was going to be kind of the standard bearer of a whole new French generation. And although he has had a, a good a good career, it's not what it should have been. So I think Ben Arthur is a very wise suggestion. And there's a player actually we talked about Adel Tarapt. I, I watched him play a lot at QPR. There's a player there now, Abereze, who people have really high hopes for. I hope he doesn't go down the Tarab path. He, again, he looks like he's so gifted and can do amazing things with the ball. But is he built for playing eleven against eleven professionally? If he can knuckle down and be coached well, he can. So he could be a player in 10 years' time with thinking, oh, he had all that potential and which path is he going to go down? But that, I think that's something we don't take into, into consideration enough. Quite often when you see really technically gifted players like Tarapt, mm-hmm. the, the assumption is this talent is kind of transformational and he's going to be the player of a generation. But that's only one element of being a footballer that is that, that ability to do like tricks and play, you know, those fancy little Cruyff pastings and chops, as they call them now. That's, that's one part of it, and it's important and it's great. It shows a, a sort of level of technical expertise, but there's lots of other stuff you have to be talented at, and I don't think Tarapt basically had any of those talents. I commentated on Benfica twice during the Champions League group stage. Tarapt played in both games, and it, it didn't look out of place. No. There, were, there were moments where you thought this guy has got everything that you would want of a player playing in his position, but it doesn't happen, happen often enough. And he doesn't contribute anywhere near as much as he should. At the time I did them on match day six, he'd been a Benfica player for very nearly four and a half years and still hadn't scored a goal for yeah. them. I mean, it, it's an extraordinary waste. Further really. proof that Steve gets all the big games. Yes, absolutely right. Benfica First Zenit choice. was excellent. <laughs> I, I will defend Benfica Zenit to the hilt. Ben Arthur, the other thing on Ben Arthur is it shows how important it is that a player finds the right coach. Because it, 
if Ben Arthur hadn't come to England, he went. It was straight to Newcastle. Newcastle, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And if he'd gone to to Spain or to Italy or even to kind of a big, a bigger club in France or a club that had. Wait, he's still a PSG now, refusing to play, isn't he? Yeah. Isn't that the latest that we have from him? I think so. But he, I mean, he, and he had a good season at Rennes last year, and he's had he's put seasons together where he's looked really good. But I, the injuries haven't helped with Ben Arthur. He obviously has a slightly difficult personality, but if he'd found the right coach in the right country in the right kind of environment, he could have he could have been something of a different order to what he is now. Just sadly, we've not found that right coach or that right country yet. <laughs> no, and he's tried quite a lot. Does narrow it down quite significantly? Yeah, but also it's not just the coach and the it's down to the player as yeah, well. Players Again, well. realizing like Tarab needed to realize, yes, I've got all this, but that is only going to take me so far. But that was the thing that they kind of purely depended on when they yeah. needed to adapt themselves. And a coach can help them do that. But as we've talked, as you grow older, you mature, you should start to say, well, right, to improve myself. I've got to change myself. I wonder if that's something that happens quite a lot with those players who are so extravagantly technically talented that they they kind of wander about thinking, I am very clearly the best footballer on this pitch. Yeah. I don't need to do any of this other stuff. Well, if you're Paolo Di Canio, you're not going to turn around and look at Andy Hinchcliffe and say, you know what, I need to get a bit of Hinchcliffe in my game. Why the hell would you want to do that? <laughs> at the very least, that's why he should be starting his career. <laughs> um, all emails as good as Arca's uh, to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Now, setpiecemenu is brought to you by... Man versus fat. I've got two questions for you. Why are you looking at me and saying man versus fat? You always do this. Look Lo- at Rory. Do you love playing football? Are you feeling out of shape? The answers to these questions, if you are indeed Andy Hinchcliffe, are not really, and not after an abs session with Wow Wow. So he is not the target of the following. Man v fat football is a nationwide program that combines football and weight loss. Man v fat doesn't preach about the latest fad diet. Try taking red meat out of it. Or detox teas, ginger and honey and lemon. They support their guys in finding a way to lose weight that suits their lifestyle, building healthy habits and getting their bodies moving more. There's no such thing as detoxing. Is that right? I read a really interesting piece on either the, in either the New York Times or the Guardian, I forget, one of the left, left-leaning metropolitan papers. That would uh, normally have fad diets and in detox fact, no, teas. I'll tell you what, it was Jay Rayner in the Guardian uh, about all these detox products that are sold as helping detoxify your system. Mm. That is literally what your kidneys and liver do. Yeah. Uh, they don't work. It's, it's all kind of sci- it's pseudoscience myth. There is a detox element with addiction and things like that, obviously. But the stuff that you buy in the supermarkets, snake oil. Uh, Man v Fat players not only score goals on the pitch, but also on the scales every time they lose weight. This means that they can contribute to their teams, rise up the league table, no matter what their natural football ability may be. Or maybe does apply to Andy Hinchcliffe. But Man V Fat is so much more than football and weight loss. It's also teamwork, accountability, friendship and fun or TAF. Like recording a podcast. Yes, players in Man V Fat leagues across the country have, up until this point, lost over £240,000 of weight since 2016. That's 17,000 stone. Mm. That's 108 tonnes. And 90% 90 of players in the programme lose weight Two. To join a league near you, go to manvfatfootball.org. That is manvfatfootball.org. Or take a look on Twitter at manvfat. Some of the testimonies from the players, by the way, on manvfatfootball.org are brilliant. And you may well look at those people and think, that is me. I will do this. Man v. Fat. Way, play, win. £240,000, you say? Yes. I'm sure I lost more than that when I got divorced. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Divorce. <laughs> Now, one of the most timeline-clogging things on social media as 2019 became 2020 was the Decade Challenge. Take a picture of yourself now and compare it (laughs) with one from 10 years ago. Wow, my hair's a bit shorter. But never wants to miss out on something that's intensely annoying. We are going to do our own version. Remember January 2010? 
No, we can't either. So we'll Google it. But what we find is a Premier League that had been dominated uh, up until that point by Manchester United and, won- and would be won eventually that year by Chelsea with an insurgent Manchester City just under new ownership trying with Spurs to get into the top four, uh, which firmly at that time included Arsenal, but not Liverpool, whose next four league finishes would be 7th, 6th, 8th and 7th. Wind it forward 10 years and much has changed. Much more, you could say, than had changed in the 10 years previously. So how did the balance of power shift so dramatically? And will the next decade be any different? I'm going to start with Stephen today on the podcast because he made a kick-ass point on our WhatsApp group. And my New Year's resolution is to stop stealing hot takes from texts and making them into my own. So, Stephen. It's a good resolution. Please, would it you begin? Last. I'm surprised it's lasted until the second week in January, quite frankly. It won't make February, let me tell you. This thing about next week. the man has no original thoughts. This thing about shifts in balance of power, it normally takes something fairly substantial, doesn't it? A, a new manager coming in or a successful manager stepping away, Sir Alex Ferguson at Manchester United, or a huge injection of cash to a club on the rise like Bramovich at Chelsea or the Abu Dhabi money at Manchester City. And I was really interested in what's happened over the course of the last few months, especially in the what feels like no more than six months since we had a discussion about our Manchester City ruining it for everybody because they're going to dominate for the next 10 years, that suddenly we're in a situation where Liverpool look like they're the unstoppable force. City have faded away a little bit from their dominance. And we've had a balance of power change without seemingly that catalyst that's normally required to exaggerate it. So, yeah, I think that's right, and it's, it's, it's quite useful to look at... It'd be really interesting, and you, no, one, no one's got time to do it, or, or the appetite, but I suspect over the last decade, we've probably, we being kind of the media and the kind of... the, the commentariat, and by that I include quite a lot of people on Twitter who are all, whether they like it or not... And also the punditocracy. The, the punditocracy and the commentariat uh, have probably predicted quite a lot of power shifts. So Chelsea was meant to be a fundamental power shift, which we've now all kind of accepted just as normal and we we haven't rewritten history but there's, it's, it's hard to kind of envisage a world as, as it was before kind of 2003 when Chelsea were I mean similar really to kind of Spurs now maybe not even as successful as Spurs now they were they, they won cups but they were they, and they were occasionally in the Champions League but they weren't a superpower by any stretch of the imagination uh, they, they had Jesper Gronkjaer playing for them the um, they were where expensive old foreigners went to retire uh, and if you're looking at the last 10 years, you probably at the start, the first two or three years, you'd have thought City are the coming force, United are the, the, the team to topple. Uh, and then you maybe went through a period where, where City were the kind of established power, looked a little bit like Liverpool might come and, come and challenge them, and then, they, then they didn't, they fell away again. And then you obviously then get into the Guardiola era where you have City for the last three years have been the established force in English football. And Liverpool now are the only team who can compete with them, and that's fair to say. But equally... City have won four titles in the 2010s. Chelsea have won three. So if you were to say, you know, which, dec- which team did the decade belong to, it would be City or Chelsea. They're, they have been the two. And to be honest, without, it's a slightly weird argument to make, but Chelsea's success has probably been a bit more consistent over the, the span of the decade, whereas City's has been a little bit more concentrated towards the end. So it's really hard to predict where power will lie and what will change, because it, it, it can... Ten years is a really long time in football, and I, th- I, w- I would say that over the course of the 2010s, football changed much more, mm-hmm. particularly on the pitch, than it has in any previous decade. 
Well, that's why I feel like football has changed. So have Liverpool and Man City become accustomed quicker than any other team to the demands of the modern game. That's why, okay, we talk about City as one club. Now it's City and Liverpool, maybe it's two clubs, but it might just be two clubs. Are everybody else trying to maybe catch up and do what those two teams have done? There's a reason why they're the dominant teams. And it isn't all about money, is it? Well, so our, our friend of the pod, or who doesn't listen, so we can say what we like about him, Midel Delaney, wrote a piece in The Independent last week about Liverpool, Liverpool's kind of run thus far this season being further proof of the, the general power shift within football, which is that there is now a cadre of super clubs who can win titles and win titles easily, um, or win titles by beating pretty much everybody else. The points total Liverpool should get this season, I don't think necessarily will, but should get this season, will be, again, up to 95, 96, 97, something like that. that that's what, what will win the league. That didn't used to happen regularly. It now happens every season in the same way as we saw Chelsea set that uh, winning record when they won the lead under, under Conte. Teams have gone on these, these 13, 15, 18 game unbeaten Manchester run. United did it as well in the 2008-2009 season. They had like a whole series of clean sheets. They had a yeah. massive long winning run as well. So it kind of started and earlier the, on in the decade. The, the point that Miguel made is that, that those kind of runs, those kinds of records those kinds of points totals are only possible because football's economy has shifted so that there are these teams that, that are so powerful and so, so rich, effectively Liverpool have got a massive wage bill, that they can effectively overpower pretty much all of their opposition pretty much every week. Maybe mm-hmm. one team will keep pace with them or whatever. And I think, that's a really, I think that's a really important thing to consider. Whether you agree with it or whether you agree... Miguel's piece was taken as Liverpool are bad for football. I don't think that's what he was saying. I think he's saying, look, the, the world has... The, the landscape has changed and this is further proof of it. I think what you have to think about in terms of are the others catching up, the rest of the bid six all have the financial power to do what Liverpool have done mm-hmm. and probably have the same results. If Liverpool are really, really well run, if Arsenal or Chelsea or Spurs did what Liverpool are doing, they could probably replicate the success-ish over the course of a few years, it wouldn't be immediate. But if you hired all the right people, did all did all the right things as Liverpool have done, then you could repli- the rest of those teams could replicate that success kind of in a similar way. So is that what Ev- Everton but are looking to do maybe as I don't well? Think, I no. don't. I I don't think. I think it's not fair to use City as a model. There can only be one Manchester City. The way that the clubs run, and it's not it's not exclusively to do with with finances, but to do with the blank canvas they had, the way they've built the project. A lot of it's to do with money. You can't, you can't say to West Ham, be more like Man City. Won't work. They, mm-hmm. can't, they can't be like Man City. I think you can say more to the rest of the bid six, be more like Liverpool, and you will, you will find that that makes you more competitive. You might not win anything, but it'll make you more, it's a better bet. But I don't think West Ham could be... Could, I think if West Ham made all the same decisions as Liverpool... West, West Ham's outcome would be different. So what's the big difference between City and Liverpool then? If you're saying they're, they're, they're not the same, where people would probably put them in the same bracket and say they are the same, you feel they, they're not. How they've got to where they are isn't, hasn't been achieved in the same way. But that's what I think is so fascinating about how we find ourselves currently and how we might find ourselves over the next couple of years. Because if we were having this discussion 18 months ago, talking about Manchester City, and we have had a discussion much more recently than that, in which, like you were saying, Miguel's piece kind of hinted towards, or at least some Liverpool fans took it as being a hint towards Liverpool being bad for football. We were having a conversation in the course of the last year about how we thought perhaps Manchester City could become bad for football because it would drive other people out of English football because they could see that there was no way that they could win here. 
all of a sudden, in a short space of time, Liverpool have discovered the formula to topple a club that looked like it should be the dominant force for years to come and perhaps even thought they were going to be Mm. solely the dominant force for years to come because not just of their financial resources, but because of the planning, because of the expertise they had in the dugout, the expertise they had off the field, making the right decisions at the right times, recruiting the right players, spending the right sorts of money to get the right solutions to the problems that they had. And yet all of a sudden, Liverpool, it looked not with meagre resources... But with making even better decisions at even more critical times and planning well into the future, have managed to not only chase down Manchester City, but made that pursuit so impressive that they perhaps have destabilised a little bit of what City were trying to do. Because it's one thing winning the league title and then backing it up, winning again 12 months later. But if you're that team in pursuit, you're always going to have that greater hunger. And I think that's what we've seen from Liverpool. But the danger with Liverpool, A, they've not won the title. Still haven't. It's only January and there's still half a season to go. It's really, really early to, to start assuming things, even with a big lead. They've got a very tricky January, Liverpool. It might be a bit different if they get through it. Um, but B, there's no... And this was actually something the Middell's, Middell's piece and the subsequent WhatsApp chat I had with Middell made me think. We don't yet know whether Liverpool... This is the crucial difference, I think, between Liverpool and City. Liverpool, this, Liverpool might be a Leicester. It might be a Leicester on a bigger scale and a more historic name and with bigger resources. And the, this is meant with absolutely no disrespect to Leicester, who my father obviously supports, so I have a huge amount of, of fondness for. If Leicester get things wrong... Leicester got loads of stuff right the last few years. Not just with the title winning season, but the way, in, in a way, the way they've rebuilt has been more, even more impressive. They've become the club I think they always wanted to be, and they've done it perfectly. They've, they've worked it perfectly. Even hiring Claude Puel was a step on a road that worked for them. And Leicester got all that stuff right. If Leicester start getting things wrong, which is possible, maybe Rodgers goes, maybe they sell a few players, maybe the recruitment's not as good, it, it happens. Leicester's, what's the opposite of a ceiling? Basement is much lower. So if Leicester start getting decisions floor, wrong... Floor. The floor. Leicester might slip to mid-table. They might slip to 14th. They could conceivably get relegated. It's not inconceivable that at some point in the next decade, Leicester will be relegated. That has always been Leicester's sort of fate, is to be them and West Brom are the yo-yo clubs. Liverpool are different, because if they get stuff wrong, like Manchester United, they might finish 8th. That's pretty much as low as... I mean, Liverpool were really bad at the start of the 2010s and finished eighth. That's as bad as it goes, and they will always have the financial firepower, the, um, the kit deals, the reach, the brand recognition, the number of fans, all that stuff. The prestige to, to, yeah, that the brings prestige. you players the, that you might like to sign. The, yeah, that means you might come back. So Liverpool of, you know, five years ago were losing 6-1 at Stoke and in 2019 are European champions. So Liverpool can do that because they have a lot of those, again, a point Middell made, they have a lot of those ingredients. The, the, what we don't know, and we'll only know in 10 years' time probably, is whether th- what Liverpool have done is join Manchester City as the twin poles that dominate English football for four, five, six years, or whether, and whether this is the start of a sort of titanic rivalry, or whether maybe Liverpool fade after this season. Maybe they've had two great years, got 97 points last year, won the European Cup made a European Cup final in 2018 and are on, on course to challenge for the Premier League title this season it might be that that, that not that that's it but maybe next year they fade a little bit maybe the, the hundred dissipates the squad has to be rebuilt players leave whereas with City so what I would say is is the coverage of City 
as and our discussion of City as a potential force that could dominate English football. And what we discussed not was was not and that's this is a really important nuance and I'm sorry for rambling. We we didn't discuss whether Man City are bad for English football. We just dis- discussed whether a team that powerful is bad for English football. And that just happened to be Manchester City. It's not a city specific thing. It would be the same if it was Doncaster. The that thing, would be an amazing story. That would be an amazing story. The, and I think as a Yorkshireman I'd welcome it. But the, it would definitely be good for English football. But the the thing with Liverpool is we don't yet know whether it's sustainable. Whether whereas with with Manchester City we have evidence that it is sustainable. They won two titles in a row. They've got the best coach in the world. They've got they've they've their their trajectory has been so steep that you you can see that as the natural conclusion for it. I, I, you I don't you can't say ev- the same of Liverpool. I yet. don't know if that's that's evidence of sustainability. I don't think two years is because you're making the same point they've about won- Liverpool, saying that that Liverpool. If Liverpool win the league this year, they have essentially sustained it as long as Manchester City have for the peak that they had. So what's what's the argument for sustainability? Is this not all, because we've spoken about very few teams have won the league three times in a row, even Sir Alex Ferguson's Manchester United, which had this incredible ability uh, to keep their hunger going and to re-evaluate the beginning, almost immediately after winning the league, to say, right, what's what's necessary for the next one? It's never, never celebrate and rest on your laurels. It's about improving for the next one. So Manchester United did it. But genuinely, nobody else has managed to do it prior to them or before them in the era of the Premier League when money has been the foundation to several periods of success for several different clubs. But I agree with Rory that it would be harder potentially for Liverpool to remain at that summit that they appear to have reached than it would be for Manchester City if you consider the slight disparity in terms of investments. But what is fascinating about it is what Liverpool have proved is possible. Yes. Because as you've already discussed, Rory, there's no reason why Arsenal, Chelsea, Tottenham, Manchester United cannot do what Liverpool have done. There's been a little bit of discussion about the Philip Coutinho money being invested wisely. They've invested that money wisely several times over. Mm. There's been a little bit of, oh, well, it's the Coutinho money. When my dad, when I was a kid, my dad smoked and in my early teens, he gave up smoking and he'd put the money aside instead into a jar and, and he, he bought himself a, a nice hi-fi once. I was going to say it. a house. No, not, <laughs> yeah, no, he wasn't that avid a smoker. Uh, he bought himself a he nice He moved hi-fi. on to harder drugs, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Steve. Take that out. Take that out. Take that out. Please take that out. Staying in because that jar actually supported his cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) And and he used to to be, well, this is my smoke. I'm I'm treating myself. This is my smoking money. But it was like 10 years later, he was still spending his smoking money. Like, Dad, I think, you know, we've moved on from that now. And it's similar with how often Liverpool has spent the Coutinho money. But they have invested wisely. But their financial resources are no greater than the other top Premier League well, clubs I, other than Manchester City. So they have, they've shown the route to what is achievable for those who want to try, try and topple Manchester City and they no longer appear quite as superior as they did maybe even 18 months ago. If, if that is the way to achieve success as Liverpool and City have done it, even though in slightly different ways, that's the, the modern way to be a successful football club. It is up to Chelsea and Tottenham and Arsenal to, again, follow that path. But I just wondered, over the next 10 years, City and Liverpool have got to such a summit. They're so far ahead of everybody else. How hard do they have to work, either of them, to, to win the league? It's virtually themselves against the other team, well, is it? I, th- I think this is what the, what the problem was 
for Manchester yeah. City at the beginning of the season, having had to win, what was it, 14 in a row at the end mm. of the season to, to, to keep Liverpool at bay. And the amount of mental toughness that required, an extraordinary kind of... It's, it's, it was easier to a certain degree if you're Liverpool because you, you have to win every game to maintain the challenge, but Manchester City had to maintain the challenge to keep a challenger at bay, which I always think mm-hmm. is slightly more uh, difficult mentally to, to overcome. But then when Liverpool started this season so well, essentially with no summer, just continued on their form, I think that broke Manchester City's resolve because they they realised very, oh, we're going to have to do what we did at the end of last season, which was so draining all the way through this season. Yeah, but for Liverpool one season, started. for one season, it might just be one season. Yes, where okay, again, but it all reverts all, back all to being City dominant you're saying, again. Is it, is it going to be one against the other? Well, mm. the, the, the reason that it was one against the other at the beginning of this season, certainly mentally for Manchester City, made them think, oh, goodness me. Nobody else is going to challenge. Yeah, but yeah, if Liverpool yeah. are going to do that, we can't do that the whole season. And do you know mm-hmm. what? We've won 198 points in the previous two seasons. <sighs> yeah, and, and, and that was that the slackening, yes. mental slackening, slackening. But also, to, they, they, the to, to beat everybody else, if they're up against each other, to beat everybody else, they don't need to perform at that level. That's what I'd say. Eighty yeah. percent of their best would beat everybody else anyway. I think Hugh's right. I think there's probably an element of I wonder if you can't sustain that 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 pace that Liverpool that Liverpool have maintained so far this season and all of last season. And I think Klopp's genius would have been to say, do you know what? I I figured out that City will break if Liverpool, if we start well. Well, You can almost do well in the first 10 games and break them and and the other 28 don't matter. And I think that was a a huge uh, kind of part of his his preparation. Let's just put this in context in terms of how much City have broken. Ordinarily... If oh yes, no. I, I, it, it, it's not like City are tenth. They're not. They've not. It's but not. That's a, what it's, I mean. not, it's not a Mourinho. <laughs> City could win two domestic cups and the Champions League, yeah. and we say it's been a broken season. It's actually played into City's hands. What's happening in the but Premier League? Yes, but they could also. Do. They could also still win the league. It's not. It's but, not. Yeah, they absolutely yeah, yeah. could. Not, but all I mean yeah. is that they. They. The, the reason that I believe that Manchester City didn't win every game at the beginning of the season, like they had won the last fourteen of the previous season, is because Liverpool started in the same vein, and that broke them mentally, and that that. That, that is essentially why Wolves happened. There's injuries um, in there as well. I think. Injuries, if, you, if you took Van Dijk and Firmino out of Liverpool's team, well, that's, that's a little, there would be an argument well, there. They, that's not is, they didn't have Alisson throughout that entire yeah. period when yeah. they managed to break Manchester City. L- Liverpool that's, in terms that's, of that's just my, yeah, my yeah. view because yeah, yeah. I think we're, we're just going back to the Sir Alex Ferguson winning three leagues, leagues in a row. He, he, t- he, he touched only, you there. Is that okay? That's fine. Yes, it's, 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 fine. it's the uh, it's fine. the podcast. Um, be quiet. Be quiet. Yeah. But there is... So Alex Ferguson only won the league three times in a row despite his 25 years almost dominance. So it's hard to do even mm. for a team famous for being able to renew that hunger. So there are, there are limits to which you can expect your team to be consistently capable of winning every single game. I think that, that is hard so that's what to, I was to maintain. Say. Not on a technical level, on a tactical level, but on a mental level. And I just think they exhaled briefly and that was it. Well, no, so I, 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 I would say the reason that City have fallen a bit behind Liverpool this season in the lead is because of the existence of Nicolas Otamendi. But <laughs> uh, I think that, that it, would be, it would be logical that there maybe is a time period over which you can sustain that pace, that there comes a point where it is no longer possible to maintain that kind of rampancy. Are you still laughing about Nicholas No, no, it's Otamendi? just going to say, have this, isn't this, if a butterfly flaps its wings here, something happens in, the, uh, in, in South America. It's like Otamendi yeah. goes flying into a tackle <laughs> and it affects the rest of the Premier League, doesn't it? It's very true, the, very true. So that, that, that is presumably what's happening, that we've, the City have had, their, have had a two-year period where they have been basically untouchable and there comes a point where that has to end. Yeah. I think what's really 
the, the, other th- the other thing I wanted to slightly address was the... Um, oh, he just touched me touch, then. Touch well. you. So there's, there's this, a whole kind of language. Very tactile here. start this, to 2020. That was just, that was just for emphasis. The, the injury <laughs> thing, City have lost Amir at Laporte. The two, the two things I would say to that is, one, a team that spent that much money on building a squad cannot say, oh, our centre-back's injured. I think you can make a very concerted, a very cogent case that Liverpool's injuries have been worse this season than, than City's. To be perfect, and there'll be a lot. There'll be City fans listening to that saying, "No, no, 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 absolutely, absolutely not." Liverpool lost their goalkeeper for ten games. They are basically without an entire midfield. All right, Van Dijk's not. Basically, when people say, oh, "If Liverpool got injuries," they mean if Virgil Van Dijk missed a game. It's it's that Jenga piece theory, isn't it? How important is that particular player? Not not just in the, 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 his defensive capabilities, because Imeric Laporte is a good defender, but he's had his moments where he didn't against Spurs in the Champions League, for example, where he had a ten minutes of crazy, uh, a ten minutes of Otamendi, we'll call it. Um, and <laughs> that, but he he is Jenga piece in the way that they they play with his position in the left hand side at centre back. So but there there is, would, there is there, there is, is logic to it to, to just to, to just increase his influence because that but I agree with you it is not to say that there has been yeah. much kind but, of harder circumstances for Manchester but the broader City. point I wanted to make was that the, in terms of the rest of the bid six the financial differences now between City Liverpool United Arsenal and Spurs and Chelsea are so minor they're massive sums of money City spent a lot of a lot of money getting into that conversation now, the, uh, to me, then a lot of people think this is ridiculous. I think you have to take the money out almost as a factor with all of them. It's, it's the, as Steve touched on, it's the way you spend mm-hmm. the money. And the issue is, if all of those other teams works like Liverpool and Man City, who are both, the, who are the two best-run clubs, the reason that they're, they're the two sort of forces are because they are be- far better run than any of the other clubs in, in every way. Could they replicate that success? And I think, yes, I think Chelsea could do that. Spurs, Arsenal, United, without question, could become as could be competitive with Liverpool and City if they worked as well as Liverpool and City. I don't think it's true of anybody else. I don't think it is a model you can rep- replicate. I think if you're Everton, if you're West Ham, if you're Newcastle, the team you have to look at and say we want to do what they're doing is Leicester. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and Leicester, but also what Leicester have done is a demonstration as to what can be achieved within their resources. So therefore, they they're laying down the gauntlets gauntlet to the bigger clubs to say come on if we can challenge for the top four by making shrewd investments appointing the right head coach and and making sure our plans follow some kind of cohesive path then why can't you do that Mm. and you know we could have given the game away when we were talking about Mangala 30 minutes ago in terms of where City have perhaps misstepped and that has been in terms of defensive recruitment that is something that Liverpool have been able to take advantage of because City make you know City are quite rightly prickly about the accusations about the amount of money they've spent and point out that other clubs have signed players for more money than they have but they have regularly over the course of the last two or three years spent 40 50 million pounds on defenders who haven't quite been up to the task of of doing what's required of them and with the benefit of hindsight spending 75 million pounds on Virgil van Dijk has proved to be a considerably more shrewd investment even if it was 25 million more than City have spent on a defender I think it's right to 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 take out the element of the amount of money spent, I think, and it's currently being spent. Currently being spent yeah. because there, there is now, roughly speaking, because even though Manchester City have more money available to spend should they want to, there is a rough, a rough parity on the ability of 
yeah. most of those clubs that we've been talking about to spend huge amounts of money. Um, well, they're wage so bills. As far as Everton and, and West Ham are going, they are able to spend 45 million to they 50 million pounds. They are, but they're not on, not on the same quality of player. No, that's because true, not in the but Champions they League. do have the capital but, to be able to invest. But, but the I'm wage bills, you, I'm touching you and I'm not going to stop talking. The <laughs> I mean, it's getting close to fondling on the other side of the table. Wrong. Steve, you and I are going to have to Chinch's body hug or probably spoon. <laughs> Chinch has got his arms crossed. He's not touching Steve anytime I'm quite uncomfortable with this, Steve, and it's getting very touchy-feely on the I appreciate that you're keeping a respectful distance from me and taking advantage of the fact there's plenty of space around this table. There's That's a true, it's a big table. There's a chair between us. There is no chair between us. I, I just want to finish uh, the, very, very briefly the point about uh, investment or reinvestment of money that you are that you've brought in, whether it's Coutinho or there's other clubs that have sold, like Leicester, for example. Manchester City didn't sign Virgil van Dijk because even though they have riches available to them, decided that £65 million was the limit that they would go to. They bid £65 million. It was turned down by Southampton. Liverpool bid more. City were given the opportunity to bid £75 million. They said no. Uh, Harry Maguire, they were given the opportunity to match Manchester United's offer of 80. They had decided that 70 was where they were going to go and they have stuck to that and they have missed out on two players who would have one certainly would have exponentially improved their situation overall but particularly now and the second might have particularly now because of the injury to Imeric Laporte so even though they have this wealth available to them and they have spent lots of money on as Steve and I have argued about over the years on very specific positions and they have been able to do that like no other club they have not been profligate by the, the standards that they themselves set on the targets that they have missed out on because of that. Now, they might have been profligate in that they have overvalued players who have turned out to not be very good, but they have not been, they have not attempted to overpay. They have attempted to not overpay mm-hmm. for targets who they have valued at a certain amount. So given all that, I think we're right to say that you cannot say that this will be defined by the ability of Manchester City and Liverpool to necessarily overpay for talent that lots of teams could potentially get because I do think there has been some sense even in the massively inflated market there has been some sense applied by both Liverpool and Manchester City in recruiting Liverpool knew that to them Virgil van Dijk was worth 75 million pounds they were prepared to pay that amount and it has seemed to be very good business Manchester City thought that he wasn't worth that amount and have been proved to be wrong in that but they are at least attempting to employ some sort of overarching sense to an inflated transfer market. You have to have the money to spend to be in the top six. You have to spend the money right to be able to compete. And I think that that's the crucial thing in terms of trying to establish where the power will lie in the next 10 years. Yeah. And it's impossible to say, because it might be... I was going to say, are, are we in a better position now to predict what the t- next 10 years... In, in 2010, did we see where we'd be by 2020? Not really. Well, no, I think if, you, if, I think if you'd looked, thought about it concertedly in, in 2010, you would have thought, well, Man City with this amount of money will be a force in 2020, and lo and behold, they are. And in the beginning of 2010, they played Manchester United in the League Cup semi-final, just like they did in 2020. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, there was that moment, and Chinch will remember it, that that essentially Manchester City for the very first time felt like they were they had competitive parity mm. with Manchester United. They'd lost the derby in the league at Old Trafford 4-3. That was the noisy neighbours. They had done the, the Tevez, the, uh, the Michael Owen, Michael Owen. Michael Michael Owen yeah. winner. They had done the Tevez Welcome to Manchester poster the previous summer. So that it basically ratcheted it up to the extent that it was, they felt that they were competing with Manchester United, even though they went on to lose that League Cup semi-final. It was a crucial moment to them when they felt like they mm. at last were able to compete with Manchester United. And that happened in the first month of 2010. And in the first meet- meeting of 2020, you see how much has changed. Who won the League Cup that year? 
Manchester United to beat Aston Villa. God, no one cares about the league. Cup, no, Manu Vidic, do you remember? He should have been sent that. off. There was a there was an early penalty for James James Milner scored an early penalty, and uh, Nemanja Vidic. Um, was for some reason escaped a red card when everybody thought it was a I have no recollection of that game even happening I think that in terms of, of looking ahead the, the big difference is that for the next 10 years although certainly the way I look at it I might be wrong the next 10 years at the start of every season the expectation will be that Manchester City are one of the teams competing for the title whether, whether Liverpool are seen as the other team competing for the title I think that will probably hold for the next two or three years mm-hmm. regardless of what happens at whether they win the league this season or not. I think for the next couple of years, there'll be a sense that Liverpool are Man City's main rivals. In 2022, 2023, it might be somebody else. It might be that Liverpool have dipped a bit. There might be three teams who everyone thinks, right, these three teams are all really good. We can't, we can't put a cigarette paper between them. There is no reason why, for, for the rest of the top six, that if they, do what, if, there is, if they become as well run as Liverpool and Man City are, then they can compete. What I don't think we'll see is anybody else. So like Leicester will get squeezed out of the equation. Any other team trying to do think, what Leicester have done will be squeezed I out think of the Leicester, equation as well. I think teams like Leicester, Leicester and teams who work like them might be able to get in the Champions League. I don't think that's impossible. Yeah. But I don't think... And that creates its own virtuous circle whereby that you, you get in the Champions League, so you get more money, you have access to better players. You can, If you use it all right, you can build... Which Leicester example. are benefiting from now, yeah, from the first Exactly. Time. So... I think it's possible that you, you might see that the, the top six doesn't hold, the bid six doesn't hold as the top six consistently. But I think that for any team to break into it, you require what's happened this season where two or three of them are misfiring fairly, I mean, in, in a couple of cases, pretty spectacularly. And that then opens that, that door. I don't think we're going to get to a stage where the bid six sort of dissembles completely. Mm-hmm. Or is is turned into a top seven? I don't think the league can can can, can maintain a top seven, and plus it, it's not alliterative, so it wouldn't, it wouldn't work. <laughs> no, I, I think we can look ahead to the, the certainly the start of a new decade with a degree of optimism regarding uncertainty in the Premier League because. There have been examples shown. Oh my God, are you? No, no, he's just took me out. It's just an over-the-top challenge there. I played the ball ref. Played the, he just took me out ball under the table. Stroking footsie under the table. This is crazy. There is a degree. <laughs> you played the ball. We can have a degree of optimism that there have been demonstrations over the course of the last 18 months of ways to compete that maybe we didn't envisage before that Mm. that Liverpool have shown that Manchester City can be toppled and therefore other clubs need to rise to meet that challenge as well so even if City are able to sustain their investment and their recruitment and keep Pep Guardiola and and keep playing this exciting brand of football and keep being the team to beat that others have now seen a pathway to being able to challenge that and that Leicester have shown a way that there is no set established top four or top six anymore that if you plan correctly and you strike at the right time that there will always be that moment where a team or two is vulnerable and that's your moment to take advantage Uh, I love that we're looking forward 10 years in a game where the most obvious cliche is to basically just look ahead to the next game and (laughs) let's just hope we're all alive by uh, by 2030 I know I'm probably the 
least likely to be here. That's because you have terrible personal habits, uh, Chinch. Terrible um, personal hygiene. Yes, that's also true. Apparently he hasn't showered yet today. Which no, I know. I wash twice a week. That's enough, isn't it? <laughs> it's the fact that he's not wearing trousers that's true. <laughs> we, could have, uh, <laughs> we could have done this whole conversation by just basically saying it's the natural ebb and flow of the game and everything's cyclical. So I'm glad mm. that we didn't fall into that trap. Uh, it is now time for Nevermind Jack and Ori. What a soccer story. This is when Andy Hinchcliffe with no trousers on tells us a tale from his playing days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. I have trousers on. Let's just... Get off on the Kinda. right foot. I've got Charles on that. Man of the match. The award of man of the match can be quite well. It's going to be contentious, isn't it? Because people oh. have their own ideas. But as a as a co-commentator, they they ask me who I think has been man of the match. Now, this was this. I don't have a lot of confrontation. I'm not confrontational really in my life. But there was a an incident in the tunnel at Elland Road with Gianni Alioski. Now, there's some background to this. This, this was on Boxing Day mm. uh, in in 2019. But the the background to this just just probably a couple of weeks before this, there'd been a Leeds Huddersfield game at Huddersfield where Jack Harrison the Leeds flying winger Mm. had been awarded man of the match I didn't actually do the game Danny Higginbottom did the game he awarded Jack Harrison man of the match so after the game Gianni Alioski I think had scored in the game and was holding the man of the match award so he's being interviewed after the game about the game and everything else and at the end of the interview the pitch side reporter I think it was Jonathan Oak said and Gianni can you do the honours and and give Jack Harrison the man of the match award and Alioski said no (laughs) he said uh I was the best player on the pitch. Um, he's not having the award. And we all thought he was joking, but he was deadly serious. So he didn't hand over the award. It, the interview ended, and apparently it, they had to force it out of his hands and give it to Jack Harrison eventually. So again, fast forward two weeks. This is Boxing Day. Um, it's Leeds against Preston. Mm-hmm. So Alioski, we're down in the tunnel waiting to get the teams. With team sheets come out, we take photographs, find out who's playing. And Alioski was down with his big coat on talking to whoever. And... He obviously realised that we were the, the Sky guys, myself and Danny Mann were, were commentating on the game. And he actually came over. Still, obviously, clearly, this was a fire in his belly. He came over and <laughs> he's said... He's played five um, games since yeah, and he's yes, still he's, bristling about he's it. He's still holding He came over and trophy. said, um, did you award Man of the Match at, at Huddersfield Leeds? And I said, so what if I did? <laughs> and he said, uh, well, I, I was the best player. I should have got Man of the Match. And I said, well, that's your opinion, isn't it? But whoever did the game, and actually, it wasn't me... Mm. I, I dropped Danny Higginbottom right in it, clearly. Like Andy Booth with writing in the snow. I'm not going to take the blame because Alioski could be a dangerous man. He could have anything in his pockets. So I, I said, well, why are you, why? you've got a big game coming up here. You're trying to get promoted this season. You're still going on about a Man of the Match award, which you didn't actually deserve to win. Yet you, you feel that, what, do you want to make another one? I'll make one out of Play-Doh and give it to you. <laughs> Your child, if this is going to make you feel better, you can have an award. We'll just we'll give you anything that you. But again, he was. St- I've never seen a player react to a man of the match award like that. But clearly, he was still incensed. And this was two weeks after the event. And actually, he was taking it up with the guy who wasn't actually at the match and didn't turn him down for man of the match. How did you? How did? How did you leave the conversation? What was the end of it? Was it a new one? I I diffused it pretty succinctly. I channeled my inner reacher. It's amazing how a headlock can really. <laughs> quieten down a situation and after he let me go it was um, it, it, it was and actually then during the game I got my own back then because I thought I'm not this is a bit petulant and everything so during the course of the game I did have a little dig at him because I think he hit the post he missed he's playing left back and he could have had a hat trick and should really have had a hat trick he missed some very easy chances and there was a little shot of him jogging back to the halfway line and I managed just to say look Gianni you had this problem we talked about it in the tunnel before the game thinking you're always man of the match so we'll decide on who's man of the match thank you very much Gianni so I managed to get the dig in so if you watch the game back he would have said oh, imagine I've got a Leeds game coming up <laughs> oh really that's did, not good is it? it Leeds lost that game didn't they Leeds drew with Preston drew, drew with Preston. Preston were excellent but Leeds we do cover quite a lot so I have a horrible yeah I'm going to have to go back 
into the lion's den and mm. take on the five foot three pocket dynamite that, that is Gianni Alioski. But if I don't give it, I didn't give it, I'm never going to give him man of the match for that game, was I? Anybody but Alioski in that game, because I'm not standing for that. I'm not being railroaded should, into a man of the match award. The next, the next ladies game that you do, you should, you should say to Daniel Mann, your usual partner yes. in crime, say, look Daniel, I really can't pick between 10 of these players, so I think we should give it to all of them apart <laughs> from, from Yes. <laughs> Can he award the, the rest of the team? But again, I've never ever seen a someone... on-pitch ceremony. You know, just sometimes when they've got the... They do the handover of the award, you can see them, they realise, actually, I'm going to be... Yeah. This isn't for me because it gets passed to you. You can see it in his face, and many players are like this. They probably feel... I should be getting this. Or they know they've not. It'd probably be a centre-half or something. They're always going to pass it on to a centre-half. They know it. But he, you could see very quickly, he realised, wait a minute, I'm not going to keep this. Mm. And he was waiting for the interview, all the questions about Leeds and, and winning and promotion. He was waiting to, to be told, hand this over. No, I'm not doing it. And I, I've, I don't know. I've never seen that ever, no. ever seen that before. The minute we finish, I'm calling Dan Mann uh, to find out what really happened yes. in the tunnel. <laughs> because Chinch's so what if I did? <laughs> and I got him a headlock is definitely not the truth. No. I would imagine, my guess is that when challenged by Lioski, mm. Chinch thrust Dan Mann in front of him and said, I don't know, I wasn't no, here. No, Ask no. him. No, there, there will be three, the three immortal words that Hinchliffe will have said when Gianni Alioski said, did you, were you in charge of the man of the match, the prestigious man of the match selection at Huddersfield versus Leeds at whatever the Metalpine's called now? Uh, the three words that Chinch, like any sort of Deeply manly, macho, coward, kind of, kind of patriarchal, unwoke man would say, would, those three words would be, no, Danny Higginbotham. <laughs> Listen, that was the truth of it. That was the truth of it. I, I couldn't pretend that I had done the game. I had to give him the truth, but then also say, well, you, you probably weren't the best. Again, you've got to fight. Reacher would I'm, do that, wouldn't he? I'm going to text Danny Hiddenbotham and say that, that Alioste's looking for you and yeah. it's Hinchliffe's fault. <laughs> well, given the last time that we heard a story from a tunnel, he confused a member of the Brentford press team for a member of the QPR press team. There's no guarantee God knows that who it he's was, not yeah. talking about some sort of Preston right winger. No, it definitely wasn't Alan Brown from Preston because Alan Brown is my favourite footballer at the moment. I love Alan, not literally, but I love Alan Brown, the way he plays football. Keep your correspondence coming into Seppi's menu at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Please subscribe, share, rate and review with an emphasis in 2020 on rating and reviewing on iTunes. Please, 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 as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Rory, Stephen and Andy. To you all for listening. We'll be back with another set-piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Who is the Preston player who looks like he has time-travelled to the 2019-2020 Championship by the same mechanism used by Nicholas Lindhurst in Goodnight Sweetheart. Furious <laughs> 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 Googling is going on now. Sean Maguire has excellent eyebrows. At, he is, he is, is manscaped. That a, is that Sean Maguire who used to be in EastEnders? <laughs> no, it's not. The, no, I don't no. think it is him. No. No, it's, it, no, he's a man with a beard and he has, he has traditional like long hair. It's not Ben Pearson? Didn't he, yeah, Pearson. Ben Pearson. Is he a centre-half? No, central midfielder. Central midfielder. We'll call him combative, but he's basically a dirty bastard. Yes. <laughs> because I saw him being interviewed, I think possibly after that Preston Leeds game mm. and thought you do not belong in this era looks, in this era not in, in this sport no he, he's he, I've never seen him play never seen him play football no, sort of noticed, noticed him playing football but he just looked like a man of a different age post-match does he disappear up an East London alleyway never to be seen again De- betraying Dervla Kerwin Nicholas Lindhurst in Goodnight Sweetheart was a complete scumbag that, sto- that, that show was awful and punching well above his weight with Dervla Kerwin 
I can't remember who played his. Dilda Cameron was his 1940s war wife. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember who was his 1990s modern wife. But both of them deserved a lot better than that. Absolutely. Can you just explain the premise of the? He time travelled back to wartime. <laughs> imagine them going as Rodney going in Nicholas Linter's beloved sitcom actor. Yes. Going into a BBC sort of pitching meeting, saying, "Right, this is what it's going to be." Time travelling adultery. Is that what he's doing? <laughs> he's having his end away in two different in, in two, two different, different decades. And Whoa. One of them there's a bloody war on. <laughs> <laughs>